Welcome to Liminal Theology, a theological podcast exploring boundaries, transitions, and being in between. I'm your host, Jonathan Best, and join me as we journey into liminal space. This conversation seems particularly timely in, in an age of Trump. I'm sure this is probably in the back of your mind, perhaps responding to mm-hmm. a changing church and in the age of Trump. I know you also mentioned immigration in, in, in your book, right. too. How are these issues interconnected? Yeah, integration is that contemporary concern linked with what we've just been talking about in, in the second chapter mm-hmm. uh, related to uh, nationalism. Yeah, it's hard. Um, my, my perspective, uh, and I'm, not, I'm not wanting, I guess, to, to jump into the deep end of the political, political situation yeah. in, in our world today, but it's, uh, there's no question whatsoever in my mind that, that the, the Christian, the person of faith, whatever religious tradition, um, must, by definition, engage in the political world. So I want to make that clear to the listener, too. I think our, our religion, whatever that happens to be, um, is in direct engagement with political life because we're human beings. And because of that, we have a political dynamic uh, that's deeply a part of our lives. So um, I'm reflecting a little bit now as an, as an historian okay. as well as a theologian. Um, When I think about uh, periods in history when um, uh, dictatorial uh, leaders have arisen, um, when those kind of forms of of government have emerged to deal with specific dynamics in in cultures and societies, um, there's no question in my mind that when things are liminal, as they are today, and because of that liminality, people are pushed uh, into black and white, uh, very clear-cut dynamics, and as I think I said earlier, are kind of yearning for an authority or an authoritarian figure, perhaps, that simply um, confirms their own fundamentalism and nationalism, etc., um, those people rise to power. Um, the, the perfect example, I think, of course, that anybody would immediately come to is Adolf Hitler in post-World War I Germany. Uh, when Germans had been marginalized, you know, this, this uh, amazing Central European culture uh, really had been thrown down uh, with its with its own economic hardships kind of thrown into the mix of all of that as well, uh, with the Great Depression following the First World War, people wanted someone, and I'll use Trump's language, they wanted a strong leader. And that essentially meant someone who will take up my cause because I'm feeling oppressed for whatever reasons or repressed, will take up my cause, champion me, and make things good again for me and my community. Um, And I I happen to believe that's exactly what's happened uh, in our political world uh, today. 
And so it won't be surprising to anybody listening that in, in my view, you know, over against um, the, the uh, I'll just start with, with number one, truth, mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with uh, uh, the value of truth and, and joy and peace and love, I have to say quite honestly that in my personal view, uh, Trump is antithetical mm-hmm. to all of these. Um, there is nobody who's ever been in the Oval Office in my lifetime who has been so consistent in being untruthful, mm-hmm. of, of spewing false statements and misinformation as much as our current president. Uh, and I hate to have to say that, mm-hmm. but I, I have to be honest with my own uh, viewpoint uh, with regard to that. Um, the, good, the good news, I think, is that the practices, you know, that um, the Christian community, those within the Christian community, make a, a commitment to these kind of practices that I talk about in the book, I think can make a difference. That's the good news. The painful news is that a figure like a Donald J. Trump is championed by many within the Christian community. You know, I think we all know that he would not have been elected had it not been the support of white evangelicals. Again, that's a, that's a huge issue um, that uh, gives me uh, pause, mm-hmm. you know, to, just to reflect on that dynamic. But there was nothing different in post-World War I Germany with the rise of Hitler. Hitler had strong support from the church uh, and those within the life of the church that yearned I'll say, for the good old days, as many do today in the United States. Um, They, at at their time, I think they saw the Jewish community as a primary threat. Uh, Of course, scapegoated, but they viewed the Jewish uh, community as as a scapegoat. Um, That's a different scapegoat for us today. I think it's it's the non-white community. It's the immigrant um, it's those people that look differently than those white Americans who yearn for those kinds of things. But it puts us in a, in a dangerous um, uh, situation. Um, and what, what I hate, I suppose, more than anything else is to see what I would consider to be authentic faith or the way of Jesus compromised. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a lot of uh, important um, books. Might just promote, you know, a couple other uh, books that are surfacing these days. Maybe authors more than the titles themselves. Uh, Jim Wallace with the Sojourners Community uh, has just uh, written a new book that um, basically asks for us to rediscover Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, um, and makes some very serious indictments against the Protestant Christian community in the United States for the way in which it's abandoned um, the vision of the biblical Jesus. Um, former, former student of mine, uh, Jonathan uh, uh, Hartgrove, uh, Wilson Hartgrove, um, in a kind of neo-monastic setting, uh, saying many of the same kinds of things, but as a, as a Southern uh, uh, ev- evangelical, um, he's focused attention more on slavery and the issues of slavery and white power in the South and in Southern religion. 
Um, uh, there, I mean, there's a lot of really great stuff that's being written today in, at the interface of uh, the rediscovery of the, of the biblical Jesus mm -hmm. and religion, Christianity, in contemporary American life. That leads me to my next question. The tone seems to sh shift a bit when you were talking about, again, dispensationalism yeah. and antinomianism. How do, how do these two relate, chapters 3 and 4, mm -hmm. you know, relate to 1 and 2? Right. And as we move from, say, kind of more fundamentalism and nationalism are very recognizable, the others two may be, may be less recognizable for some. Can you explain those last two chapters? Sure, sure. Yeah, there you, you've put your finger on, on something that's, I think, very clear in the evolution of the book or as, as you move your way through the book. Um, and, and you've said it very clearly yourself. Fundamentalism and nationalism, I think, are ideas, realities in contemporary society that most people would be able to identify pretty easily, or at least know what you're talking about. Uh, a part of the challenge to me was making these third and fourth ideologies uh, more understandable, mm -hmm. you know, to a reader, because they're not uh, immediately known as well. Uh, there may be uh, even listeners who've never heard of dispensationalism, mm -hmm. uh, never heard of antinomianism. Um, I wanted to, to, to keep those classical terms mm -hmm. because those terms do, in fact, express exactly the issue, mm -hmm. you know, that um, I feel is a dangerous uh, ideology. So let me just kind of walk through each of those uh, and see if connections uh, get made in the process of it. Um, dispensationalism is, is a theological perspective. It's a... It's a it, it comes out of a very peculiar interpretation of Scripture that's actually quite young. Um, of all these isms that I'm looking at, this is the youngest. And it only goes back to the 19th century. Um, and it has to do with, um, uh, I'm sure if I, if I just use several phrases or several words, um, your listeners will have some sense of immediately of what I'm talking about. Left behind. You know, the Left Behind series, for example. Uh, that's a, an ex, a, a direct expression of dispensationalism. Uh, dispensationalism has to do with um, uh, a Christian's understanding of the end times. You know, where, where are things headed in human history, uh, in God's plan? Um, and the, the particular text in Scripture that is the locus of all of this is, maybe not surprisingly, Revelation, um, which fundamentalist Christians, and here's the tie-in with fundamentalism and biblical literalism, most fundamentalist Christians would view the book of Revelation as a roadmap with regard to the future, um, that kind of in, in very cryptic and symbolic language gives us a, an image of God's plan. Where is this all headed? Um, a couple other isms that are related to this, again, maybe this will be new to listeners, uh, have to do with the term millennialism. Um, and they're all different forms of millennial. Post-millennialism, 
premillennialism, amillennialism. Um, I don't want to get into the intricacies of all that, but all of that simply has to do basically with what's described as a thousand-year reign of Christ, as it's described in the book of Revelation. Well, how do you understand all of that? Again, I'm going to dispense with it maybe in a couple sentences rather than get lost in the weeds here. Um, basically, the way I understand the book of Revelation is that that book is not a roadmap for the future. Rather, it is, a technical term is apocalyptic. Uh, it's an apocalyptic work that I believe was meant to instill hope in Christians who were being persecuted in the first century um, and was written for them in that century. So the first thing that we have to do is try to understand the context. And it was a context of persecution. It was the, during the reign of Nero um, in the first century. Uh, so the primary purpose of Revelation is to give persecuted Christians hope. It's not to give us a predicted plan for the way the world is going to end. But uh, the, the premillennialists in particular uh, basically believe Revelation shows that things get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus returns. Mm -hmm. right? Dispensationalism is a form of that premillennialism. Mm -hmm. So it says this world is just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, you get a lot of this kind of theology in televangelism mm -hmm. um, and in the media and some of these high-profile uh, evangelical fundamentalist figures uh, who've figured out all the all the code and can tell you when the world's going to end and exactly where we are on the timeline and all of that. Um, my concern about um, this dispensationalism um, is that it shifts people's focus away from this world to heaven. So the dispensationalist says things are getting worse and worse and worse. You just need to be in a right, a right relationship with Jesus so that when the tribulation comes, you know, when things fall apart in this world, you, you escape this world, you go to be with Jesus, and everything is great in heaven. So it shifts our focus away from this world to life with God. Um, now, what's the danger in that? Well, in the research that I've done, um, I, I'll simply say I have a lot of evidence, talk about some of it in the book here, that the present concept of climate change as a hoax, a lot of that is in the evangelical Christian community. So that, in other words, there are many fundamentalist or evangelical Christians who have bought in to this idea that climate change is a hoax, therefore we don't need to worry about it. And anyway, we, we don't need to worry about it anyway because this world is passing away. Um, and Jesus will return and all of this will be gone. Um, I, I just find that to be unbelievably dangerous. Not, not only do I find it wrong-headed, but it actually puts future generations of God's children in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. um, and things can deteriorate, I think, much more rapidly than people believe.
you know, you, you look around, and I've, I've, had, I've actually had so many people uh, tell me if I ever engage in a conversation mm-hmm. about this with them. I don't see anything really different from the way it's been, you know. There have been really bad storms in the past, and, and if it's global warming, then why is it cold? <laughs> you know, other than directing them to some really clear scientific data, I don't know what else you could do. But again, the bottom line on this is that uh, dispensationalism turns people's attention away from the, um, the, their stewardship of this planet, uh, something that uh, God makes very clear in the very opening chapters of Genesis. As you're speaking, you know, I feel like I see some levels levels of retreat and in, in, in the different themes you've brought up, you know, in terms of fundamentalism, a kind of retreat retreat mm-hmm. from an open open and inclusive reading of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and nationalism, a retreat from others who may uh, look differently, act differently, um, in terms of trying to recapture some sort of bygone error. Yeah. And then, you know, and then dispensationalism, again, a further retreat this time from perhaps nature itself, our own world, you know, further... And responsibility. And responsibility. So there's each each level, it seems, that you're moving further into a deeper core issue of... Um, of how we respond to mm-hmm. the people, to to people, and to the world around us, uh, whether it's one of as, in transition, one of moving toward a more open and inclusive perspective, one that kind of broadens our outreach, or one that further retreats us, for, you know, farther and farther back from first, you know, uh, within our own religion and our own culture, and then finally, you know, from you know responsibility mm-hmm. toward nature itself um, there seems to be you know that kind of deepening of kind of idea that you know not my problem or right. Right. you know I, I'm only comfortable with the this set of beliefs or this set yeah. of people and any, anything else is I'm afraid of or it's not my problem you yeah know, that, that kind of that kind of mentality yeah, and I see that same re- kind of retreat. I haven't thought about it. That's helpful to me, Jonathan. I haven't thought about it in terms of retreat before. But I also see a connection with the fourth chapter, maybe to segue uh, into that on holiness, is I think there's a retreat um, in, in this particular dynamic away from the, uh, the simplest way to put it, I, I guess, is the quest for love. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe a maybe a sense that for me to love in the same way that Jesus loved just isn't possible. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm never going to ever be able to do that. So therefore, why try? And that kind of leads directly into that uh, concept of antinomianism, uh, which means against the law. And let me let me illustrate uh, antinomianism uh, with a story. Uh, that might be the easiest way to get into it. I find stories oftentimes help a whole lot more than just kind of discourse. Um, when I was in high school, we lived in a southern suburb of Chicago uh, with a lot of Dutch, uh, South Holland, Illinois, and a lot of Dutch uh, folk there uh, who'd migrated out of the city uh, south. And the church, uh, the, the community was filled with churches, re- many of them reformed. Dutch Reformed and Reformed churches. 
And we had a neighbor just across the street who uh, was, I would say, one of the most churched people I think I ever knew. Um, he was devoted to his church. He was there every Sunday. They had multiple services of worship on Sunday morning. He was there the whole morning. They had uh, Wednesday evening services. He was always there on Wednesday evening. And I think it probably served in, in every different arena of that church's life, that congregation's life. I have never known a, a more racist person in my life. Um, I would go so far as to say he absolutely hated black people. Uh, and he was very open about that. Um, I was maybe young enough, naive enough to ask him why. And I, one afternoon I just said, you know, I, I just don't understand how you can have these attitudes about black people and consider yourself to be a Christian. And he said this, literally, I can do it almost verbatim. He said, I have put my faith in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. So I don't need to worry about any of that other stuff. In other words, because he had put his faith in Jesus, he could behave, he could think, he could have attitudes that are antithetical mm -hmm. to Jesus' life, ministry, teachings, but he felt he was safe and secure mm -hmm. because he had proclaimed, confessed his faith in Jesus. That meant he had his ticket to heaven, um, you know, he was packed and ready to go, and didn't need to, nothing, nothing mattered in terms of how he related to other people. Second story, uh, maybe, I mean, they're both bad. <laughs> I mean, certainly just as bad. Um, I went to a Lutheran university, Valparaiso University, sang in university choir, which meant we went on tour every spring. We went to New York one spring, and about six or seven of the guys in the choir stayed with a bachelor, Lutheran bachelor, in New York. Um, we walked into his apartment, and I have never been confronted with so much pornographic imagery in my life. And I would say his apartment was filled with pornography. And again, naive little Methodist guy that I was, I said, I don't understand. I mean, how can you how can you have all this pornography around you and claim to be a follower of Jesus? And the response was exactly the same. You know, I have faith in Jesus, therefore I'm saved. So it doesn't make any difference what I do. Yeah. So it's antinomianism is an overemphasis upon salvation by grace, faith, the idea that there's nothing we can do you know, works righteousness. There's nothing we can do to be saved. Therefore, you don't need to do anything, even if you are a person who's put your faith in Jesus. So it's an all faith, no law, kind of an understanding of the faith. Um, again, I would hope, you know, I hope that most people would find this to be dangerous. <laughs> you know, um, the lesson, and I, I suppose in some ways I like this fourth chapter, I won't say the best, but it's, it's one of the most interesting to me because it's maybe more theological than the other three, 
Uh, it, it's a very highly nuanced theology that I talk about here, um, and some rediscoveries about theology as well. And the one that I'd really like to share with your listeners um, is, is the so-called four-chapter gospel, because I think this really kind of gets again at the heart of it, um, the, the issue that I'm trying to deal with there. Um, a number of contemporary theologians like an N.T. Wright, uh, Scott McKnight uh, here in the United States, have rediscovered what they are calling the four-chapter gospel. And this rediscovery is an implicit critique. And they have been critiquing uh, contemporary evangelical, American evangelical theology because of the way that it's truncated the gospel. It's cut the gospel short. And they've described essentially contemporary evangelical theology as a two-chapter gospel. Um, and the, these are the two chapters. Um, chapter one, in this sense, is all of us are sinners. So it focuses on the fall of humanity and the fact that we're broken, sinful. The second chapter is the antidote to that problem, that disease, and that's faith in Jesus. So given the fact that you're a sinner, all you need to do is put your faith in Jesus and you are saved. And oftentimes that quite simply means you're going to heaven. Mm -hmm. That's the two-chapter gospel. What uh, some have claimed, and what I certainly would claim, is that that truncates a much larger narrative of Scripture, which is not two, but four chapters. Mm -hmm. And what that excludes are the first chapter and the fourth chapter. So rather than beginning in chapter 2, which is now chap the second the chapter about the fall, um, everything begins with creation. So chapter 1 is creation. God creates and God declares, this is good. Humanity, this is very good. Then chapter 2 is the fall. You have to acknowledge something's not right. Things have gone wrong in this. Chapter 3 is redemption. So you've got creation, fall, redemption in Jesus. But the purpose of the redemption is to lead us into chapter 4, which is restoration. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So the purpose of the Christian uh, religion is not to get people faith so they go to heaven. Rather, it's for faithful people. Yes, faith is important for faithful people to discover their primary vocation, their primary calling, to be agents of God's restoration of this world, leading to the new creation. Um, and the, the goal, therefore, is love. Uh, faith, chapter 3, is the means to the fourth chapter's goal, which is love. Mm -hmm. So this four-chapter gospel holds creation and redemption together. It holds our faith and our love together. Uh, and I think puts us on a, on a trajectory um, to partner with God mm -hmm. in the good things that God's doing. Uh, one of the prayers that comes out of our tradition 
Methodist tradition, I, I, I just love, uh, and it basically says, all day long, God is at work for good in the world. Uh, so being a part of the Christian faith, being a follower of Jesus, means to partner um, in that work of new creation that God is doing day in and day out. So the, 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 the retreat, mm -hmm. to come back to your sense, the retreat in terms of this issue um, is to retreat from, from the hard work, but the good work of love. Mm -hmm of really being loved, it's, it's to rest, it's to become complacent in faith uh, because I'm now safe. Yeah. Um, and Jesus, uh, again, uh, if, if we are genuinely concerned about a life that imitates Christ, that means we give our life mm -hmm. for the life of the world. It's not about me. It's about God's grand vision of inclusive community of loving embrace, of, um, uh, of beauty and truth and love um, in our lives and in the world. Seems really to be an idea of rediscovering what love is in terms of faith. It's not so much, yes, Jesus loves us, and, and that, but that love isn't just one directional, mm -hmm. but rather multi-directional in terms of the idea of love should also be a kind of a motivating factor for yeah. to outreach into our own world that love isn't just a matter of getting into heaven but right. rather working for god's kingdom here on earth in terms of in all the issues that you've you've raised in terms of outreach in terms of inclusiveness in terms of responsibility in terms of um opening our doors really mm -hmm. to our neighbors and especially those that look or think or act differently than than we do and it seems to be that active faith is kind of this this push this motivating factor mm -hmm. this guide toward a more robust understanding of 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 love of what mm -hmm. it is to live Christ you know Christ like um, yep. in our world. Absolutely. What I would like to do now is to kind of um, fit active faith into your wider work. You know, looking at your kind of your past um, text and where you're thinking about going to the future. You know, how mm -hmm. did you see yourself writing active faith 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Or it was active faith kind of a thrust upon you, kind of a kind yeah. of a call that you. Yeah, I would I would definitely consider it for me something like a Kairos moment. I mean, it just seemed that things all came together very rapidly. Um, and this was also true, by the way, of Steve's book on holy love. It was very very rapidly produced. Um, these are almost slingshotted into existence. <laughs> um, the writing was very fast. Um, without question, active faith is, I would say, my, my most personal work. Mm. You know, so much of my work, I, I would consider myself really as an historical theologian, and most of my work has been done on other people. Um, but this is something that really comes directly out of my own heart, uh, out of my own life and, and life experience. 
So it's unique in that sense. Um, my kids, if that's any measure, I have five girls, and my girls say they see me in this book more than any of my others. Uh, and that just feels good to me at this time. So as I said earlier, you know, original title is a progressive Wesleyan manifesto. Well, manifestos, you know, they, they, they don't just happen on an afternoon. They, they come out of something deep uh, that's been percolating uh, for a while and, and then emerge at a time when, I guess, I, I felt uh, this was needed. Um, in the, in the uh, progressive Wesleyan um, declaration that I include as an appendix, it's kind of, a, I almost describe it as a liturgical um, um, composition. Um, I begin by saying, with confidence in the promises of God, faith in Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we declare. And then there are four paragraphs, very brief paragraphs. We, um, we find truth in Jesus, we find joy in Jesus, we find peace in Jesus, we find love in Jesus. And then it closes with these words, we embrace the holistic and all-inclusive vision of God's restoration of beloved community. So that's really, you know, the primary orientation of it really is around um, this, this issue of in inclusivity and uh, to use uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s term, beloved community, uh, as that new creation that God is, is involved in. And I think a lot of, there are a lot of uh, Christians who when they think of that, um, that text from Corinthians where Paul talks about new creation, they, they tend to think of that in a highly individualized way, very personalized way. Even earlier translations don't help in this regard. You know, they, the, even the uh, New Revised Standard Version says, uh, if any man, it's, it's sexist right, right up front, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. But that's not actually what the text says, and it's not gendered. It's if anyone is in Christ, and there's no verb. So it's if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Uh, and there's a cosmic dimension in this. And that's, those are the kind of things that I really wanted to, to point to um, in the book. Here's, here's something a bit funny. Um, I, I said that this kind of came out of my having read my friend Steve Harper's Holy Love, and it wasn't too long that the title Act of Faith got settled in my own mind. And then in subsequent conversations with Steve about this, we were, we were having lunch one day and I just said, you know, we've got Holy Love and we've got Active Faith, Faith, Love, and Hope. And so both of us kind of simultaneously said, let's work together on a book which we've now entitled Living Hope. So as a, a kind of a trilogy of these theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. Um, and we're getting near, very close to the completion of the manuscript for that. Um, it's written exactly in the same style for very accessible uh, to any reader, uh, very simple and straightforward. Uh, so we, we kind of look forward to uh, to living hope as well and kind of round out a trilogy here. Would you say that that the mission that you started in active faith and that you're continuing in this next work, but 
do you see this as a your kind of your ongoing quest, your theological journey? You know, this is going to be your theological journey from for, for from now on. Well, that's hard to say. Yeah. It could be. It certainly is. Uh, all of these are are synchronized um, in the sense that they are related pretty directly with all of these developments within the church, and not just our United Methodist Church, but the church in general. And um, and this theme of inclusion and inclusivity, I think, uh, is the theme that runs through this. Uh, but you know, as we contemplated where we are right now, particularly in the United Methodist Church, um, our conclusion is that people are really kind of in low ebb in terms of hope. I wouldn't say people are hopeless, uh, but boy, there's a, there's a real shortage of hope right now. So it, it has that same sense of, um, of urgency, I guess I would say that I think both Steve and I felt with the other two books uh, independently. But now we have an urgency mm -hmm. uh, in something we can collaborate on, which makes it all the better. Now as we approach the end of our conversation, how can others connect with you and learn more about your work on, on social media or website mm -hmm. or online? Yeah, yeah, well thanks for that, uh, that invitation. Um, the simplest thing I think is email for me. At the, I don't I don't have a website uh, of my own, um, but my email is simply p w c h i l c o t e, my first two initials and last name, uh, at aol.com, mm -hmm. and I'd be more than happy to to field any questions or engage in conversation uh, by email that way. Uh, folks, of course, if they're uh, connected with your uh, with your blog with liminal theology, uh, they can reach me through you uh, mm -hmm. as well uh, if you want to do that uh, more directly uh, even. Uh, but I'm 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 a person who loves conversation, and um, I've always enjoyed our breakfasts together <laughs> and and uh, kind of thrashing out all the big ideas and the the difficulties and as well as the joys and kind of ecstasies of life, too, that we all experience. Uh, that's been a lot of fun, so I'd invite any conversation. Well, Paul, I want to thank you for this rich and rewarding conversation, for talking about your work, Act of Faith, and talking about your kind of wider theological vision. Um, it's always immensely rewarding to speak with you, and I look forward to talking more about future works and perhaps have you back on again one day to talk about the next the next work in this ongoing series of um, really I think is very contemporary very um, poignant theology really speaking to what is going on in, in our world today and, and I appreciate what you're doing in, in kind of moving forward that kind of progressive vision both within you know that kind of Wesleyan uh, progressive vision, um, both within um, your own denomination, but also in the wider Christian scape, mm -hmm. and I think in really in, in our wider culture as well. Mm -hmm. And so, um, with that, I, again, thank you very much for this conversation. Yeah, thank you, John. It's always a great pleasure to be with you. I've enjoyed it. My name is Jonathan Best, and this has been Liminal Theology. Learn more at liminaltheology.org. Thank you.